From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. April's usually one of Colorado's snowiest and windiest months. The snow is a bust. The wind, however... We have just had a jet stream that's screaming overhead up at about 30,000 feet. During the day, some of that energy really translates down to the ground through some mixing in the atmosphere, and we get these really windy conditions. But this year has just been crazy. Our regular climate and weather talk with Denver 7's Mike Nelson. Then, sizing up Colorado's seismicity, earthquakes here aren't always a natural phenomenon. Yeah, so in the past few decades, the largest earthquake has been a magnitude 5.3 southwest of Trinidad. So that was an earthquake where we actually think that it was related to human activity. Plus, Eco Hip Hop, an album that comes with a seed pack. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. High fire danger is escalating to extreme in parts of Colorado. On Wednesday, wildfire claimed homes in Monte Vista in the San Luis Valley. Dry conditions are to blame. So are fierce winds. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson says the wind is what everyone is asking him about these days, including me. It's where we started our regular conversation about climate and weather. The springtime is a, very often a windy time. It's statistically our windiest time of the year. And oh. uh, if you think about it, we're coming out of winter. So there's still a lot of cold air that's up in Canada and across the northern Great Plains. But there's building warmth from the south, from the Gulf of Mexico and moving northward. So we're getting a bigger north-south temperature contrast. And that's what the jet stream up at 30,000 feet really feeds off of. The greater the temperature contrast across the country, generally the stronger the jet stream is. And this year, we have just had a jet stream that's been screaming overhead up at about 30,000 feet, generally 100 to 150 miles per hour. And during the day, some of that energy really translates down to the ground through some mixing in the atmosphere. And we get these really windy conditions. But this year, has just been crazy. Well, Chris, you pair that then with warm temperatures and dry conditions, and it is the perfect storm, so to speak, when it comes to fire weather. Uh, Let's talk just briefly about snow. How has April compared to historical averages? And maybe speak to the front range and the high country for me. Well, it's been terrible. I mean, we had all those regular snowfalls pretty much from the day after the Marshall Fire, we're getting regular snows all the way through January, February, and March. We haven't had any moisture to speak of since the third week of March, and we've only had one one-hundredth of an inch of moisture so far for the month of April, putting it as one of the all-time driest going back to the 1880s. 1880s. Uh, and, and so normally there is snow right now. Yeah, April's typically one of our snowier months. We get generally about 10 inches of snow during the month of April, and uh, this year it's just been nothing. Meanwhile, our climate team has reported that the snowpack in some areas is already starting to melt. Uh, That seems like it would have some 
serious consequences downstream. Absolutely. Well, we're having all of the stories coming out of how the record lows on the uh, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, the Colorado River, is just uh, not going to replenish that this year at all because our snowpack has been okay, a little bit below uh, normal, but it's been okay this year. But with climate change and warmer springtime temperatures, we're melting out that snowpack earlier. And uh, that is not anything that's a political statement. That is just the reality. Indeed, the Colorado River was named the nation's most endangered this week by the conservation group American Rivers. More than 20 years of record-breaking drought, driven, as you say, by climate change, has brought the river and reservoirs, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, to record lows. Just last month, Powell dropping below a critical threshold for the first time. And then more good news. We're headed into severe weather season. I'm thinking of thunderstorms, hail, tornadoes. What's the general outlook there? The long-range forecast looks hot and dry, and that's not only for the next 30 days, that's for the next 90 days. But that doesn't mean we won't have our share of severe weather days. And starting really in early May uh, and running through the middle part of June, that's our peak season in Colorado for tornadoes. Uh, We get about 50 a year on the average. 90% of them occur along or east of I-25, not very many in the mountains. The rugged terrain kind of restricts the rotation needed in a thunderstorm uh, to develop tornadoes there. So it's a reality that we've got to be really weather wary and uh, know what's going on in the next six to eight weeks, because that's our mean season for severe weather, for large hail and for tornadoes. Yeah, the hail is so destructive and on such a widespread scale, you know. Well, we get more hail here, partly because of our altitude, right along the front range and going up into Wyoming as well. We're a little bit closer to the cold air loft. And so if we get a big thunderstorm that's producing hail, that hail manages to make it down to the ground, where in other parts of the country where it's a little bit lower elevation and warmer, uh, closer to the bottom of those thunderstorms, uh, most of that melts. So this is kind of the, the peak area for large damaging hail. All right. So dry and warm. It looks that way for at least the next several weeks, huh? Dry and warm with uh, intermittent severe weather because we will get it. And so when the sky starts to turn angry, especially coming up mid-May to the middle of June, just pay attention and make sure that you're up to date on the watches and the warnings. You told us to be weather wary. I have to say, I'm a little weather weary at this point. But Mike, (laughs) thanks, thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you, Ryan. Good to talk with you. Mike Nelson, chief meteorologist at Denver 7. He joins us each month to talk about the interplay between weather and climate. So to live in this state is to have a front row seat to natural disaster. But there's one phenomenon Coloradans are left to wonder about, earthquakes. Where are the fault lines in Colorado and where can we expect seismic activity, if any? That is Louise Watson, who lives in Bailey. She's one of several folks to reach out on this topic through Colorado Wonders, where your curiosity drives our reporting. And this time it drove us to Golden, home of the federal government's National Earthquake Information Center. We're on the School of Mines campus, part of the Geologic Hazard Science Center, uh, which is a USGS center. And in here we have people who study earthquakes, landslides, geomagnetism. But the NEIC, the National Earthquake Information Center, is where we study seismicity globally and monitor it. And then as soon as we can report an earthquake, we report its size and its location. Seismologist William Yeck is our guide. So if there were an earthquake somewhere on Earth 
as we were standing here today, it would be monitored here and then kind of assessed? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we have seismic stations recording globally from a variety of different seismic networks, and we ingest that data. And if it's a significant earthquake, so magnitude 5 and larger, we'll report on it within 20 minutes anywhere in the globe. Report to whom? To the public, as well as any interested parties who use that information uh, to try to understand the impact of the earthquake and how to respond to it. So while you're busy here talking with me, is there someone monitoring a screen in this building in real time? Right. So we have systems that continually automatically look for earthquakes. And then uh, then we have a team of humans. We have human analysts who work really hard 24-7 on three shifts who will actually look at that information once our automatic systems uh, create an event and then actually publish it to the web with more detailed characterization. Walking around this place, I am just seeing map after map after map, you know, of... of what events that are pretty disturbing in people's lives, but are a part of your daily career in science, Bay Area earthquakes over there, what else? Yeah, so, I mean, not only are we monitoring earthquakes in real time, but we're also creating a catalog of earthquakes, right? So this is a hazard map of the U.S. So what we do is we take all the earthquakes we record, as well as faults that we know about, and we estimate the hazard of seismicity in different locations. So this is a map of the frequency of damaging earthquakes around the U.S., and you'll see... You know, for a lot of the U.S., uh, these lighter colors show that there aren't a lot of earthquakes, but then areas where we have these more red colors, uh, such as California or Alaska, uh, that's where there's higher seismic hazard, and that's where we see more earthquakes. Well, and this is fundamental to why we are talking to you today, which is to ask you about seismicity and faults in Colorado. Indeed, California is different shades of intense red, Colorado only seems to get into light orange. Otherwise, it's yellow, green, and blue. Some white, meaning almost no seismicity on the plains. In general, are we a shaken place? Right. So we don't have seismicity like you see in some areas. Uh, where we really see high seismic hazard is where we have plate boundaries. So, for example, California, most people have heard about the San Andreas Fault. That marks the plate boundary between the Pacific Plate and the North American Plate. And it really creates a high seismic hazard. There's lots of seismicity there. In Colorado, we don't have any tectonic plate boundaries like that. So we don't see that discrete lineation of seismicity that you would see in other regions. Now, are all faults related to plates? No, they aren't. So we have faults all throughout Colorado. It's just most of them are really small faults. And that's true anywhere in the U.S. There's faults everywhere. Just in most cases, the slip rates are very, very small, and those faults might be very, very small, so you don't see these significant earthquakes. When we have earthquakes away from a plate boundary like that, we refer to them as intraplate earthquakes. So in Colorado, we do have those intraplate earthquakes, um, but they're really, when we look at seismicity and we record it, we see it's dispersed throughout the state. It's dispersed, and what would then, if you can explain this for me in layman's terms, what would trigger... In other words, a Colorado earthquake. And let's talk about natural causes first. We'll get into the idea that people can trigger earthquakes a bit later. Right. So even though we're away from these tectonic plate boundaries, we are still having a stressed crust. So that comes from these plate boundaries. That stress is transmitted into the far away from the plate boundaries, as well as there can be local changes that change the stress within the subsurface. And anytime there's stress placed on a fault, 
it has the potential to slip. So a fault is just a plane in the earth, and when it slips, we feel an earthquake. What is the biggest recorded earthquake in Colorado history? Uh, so historically, the largest earthquake that we have evidence for was in 1882. It was a magnitude 6.6, but that was before we could actually record seismicity on seismographs and actually really accurately detect the location and the size of the earthquake. So for that earthquake, we had to rely on felt reports or what people describe in the shaking to try to estimate where it occurred. Felt reports, that is what people felt. Yeah, exactly. And large reliance on news for that. So what newspapers said about the event. And from the intensity of shaking, we can tell that it occurred somewhere in north central Colorado. And we can also tell that it was around a magnitude six and a half. But it's really, you know, imprecise compared to what we can do today. North Central, what, what would be the closest town that you could pinpoint? Right. So it, we don't have a very good location, but it would be west of Fort Collins. West of Fort Collins. And six and a half, you said, about? But that varies depending on who estimated the size of that. So, you know, we don't really have an accurate estimation of its size. What about in more recent years or days? Yeah, so in the past few decades, the largest earthquake has been a magnitude 5.3 that occurred in 2011. That was southwest of Trinidad. So that was an earthquake where we actually think that it was related to human activity. There's natural seismicity that occurs in that region, but there was also wastewater injection going on, and that event may have been triggered by human activity. Okay, so this is near the New Mexico border in southern Colorado, not far from, I guess, Raton Pass. And it is a segue to the fact that people can trigger earthquakes. That makes me feel incredibly powerful, by the way, William. Yeah, I mean, Colorado actually has one of the richest histories of human-caused earthquakes by wastewater injection. So some people might remember uh, in the 1960s, there's a sequence of earthquakes that occurred in the Denver area, and that was caused by injection at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. And that was really the first case where we saw wastewater injection causing earthquakes. Wastewater injection, meaning what? Well, it's any water that we people want to get rid of, and they just inject it deep underground to get rid of it. So in modern times, that's mostly related to oil and gas, and it's usually a byproduct of oil and gas extraction. And I know that as well, there was some underground nuclear testing near Rulison, Colorado. Uh, That had some seismicity, I think. Right. So a lot of seismicity, or really seismology as a field, a lot of the development came from monitoring nuclear blasts, because when there is a nuclear explosion or any explosion, it creates seismic waves, and we can record those and estimate the size of an earthquake. You know, Colorado has a lot of areas where we do see these human-induced earthquakes, so the Raton Basin is one of them, and that's an area where we see natural seismicity, too. In Paradox Valley, there's been induced earthquakes since about 1991 from fluid injection from a project for the Bureau of Reclamation. Then we've seen the Denver area earthquakes in the 1960s. In Rangeley, there was actually an experiment uh, where we tested increasing pressure at depth and saw that we could cause earthquakes. And then Greeley, Colorado, more recently, we've seen some small earthquakes induced by fluid injection. So are we smart enough to know how to prevent them when injecting wastewater? Or is that a bit of a crapshoot still? It's a really challenging problem because we know that there's faults in the subsurface, but often we don't know exactly where they are. So Oklahoma is a good example where we saw a lot of earthquakes induced by fluid injection, and we found that we don't really know where all the faults are. There's lots of small faults in the subsurface that just aren't imaged or weren't seismically active prior, so we just don't know they exist. So that is the key here, that if you are injecting where there are faults, that's sort of the magic 
recipe. Right, exactly. I mean, by definition, an earthquake is occurring on a fault. Uh, so it's just the size of the fault that really controls how large that earthquake could be. I'd like to ask you about a specific experience, a felt experience in Colorado Springs. Shall we go over to your office? That sounds great. We walked down a long, empty hallway, empty because when we visited the National Earthquake Information Center in Golden, the vast majority of work was being done remotely in the pandemic. All right, we've had a seat here in your office, which has a mound of what looked like archival earthquake records. You've got a map here, seismicity of the earth, 1900 to 2018. And then a a more modern piece of technology, your computer. With this, I'm going to have you help us answer a question from Jennifer Woodall, who lives in Colorado Springs. There are times, particularly in the evenings, when there's a definite trembling. I'll be sitting in bed reading a book and the book will start to shake. And I want to know what it is. I spoke to a friend who said, oh, it's the trains, because I live a block west of the highway and the railway line. But it's not the trains, because I hear their whistles, and I don't feel the trembling when they whistle. And I don't believe it's semis on the freeway, because I can hear them too. And I don't hear them when this trembling happens. Now, you say the book shakes. Does the house shake? I mean, do you hear, you know, windows rattling or? No, no, it's much more subtle than that. I've also seen when I'm sitting at my desk, I have um, I have a supplemental monitor that's on a stand and I've seen it tremble. Now, could it be anything in the air? I think about how close you are to the Air Force Academy, for instance. Oh, you know, that hadn't entered my mind. Um, Again, the Air Force Academy, I can usually hear the planes, and I don't know what their setup is, but I don't think they go flying around at night after dark much. How long would you say this has plagued you, Jennifer, this question? Oh, ever since I moved into this apartment four years ago. William, do you think she's feeling earthquakes? in the heart of Colorado Springs? Uh, There is seismicity throughout the state, so it's always possible if you're in Colorado that you could be feeling an earthquake. Um, Here on the map, I have a map of all the earthquakes that we've cataloged in Colorado, and we can zoom in and look at Colorado Springs. And we can see that there's not a lot of seismicity in the area around Colorado Springs. Anytime anyone feels an earthquake or thinks they feel an earthquake, they can report it on our website in a Did You Feel It report. And then we'll have analysts who will actually look for it and see if it's associated with an event. I see three circles that are mostly in the foothills west of Colorado Springs. What do those represent? Right. So these are earthquakes. But this is a catalog that I pulled up from decades of seismicity. So we see that there's not a lot of earthquakes uh, over decades. And some of these are more recent. There are a few earthquakes that occurred near Ellicott, Colorado. Um, in 2018, we see here, one in 2020. So there, there are earthquakes in the region. That's east on the plains east of Colorado Springs. Right. But these are all very small earthquakes, which uh, in many cases probably would not be felt or at least not widely felt. Uh, one thing that stood out to me about those comments is that she reported feeling earthquakes at the same time at night. Earthquakes are random. They can occur at any point of time. So if you're feeling something and it's occurring around the same time of day, it's 
unlikely that that's an earthquake because you wouldn't see that sort of temporal pattern. Okay, so you think she might want to keep digging. Yeah, I, I think it's likely that it could be something else. But that said, I mean, you know, you could report that you felt something that you think might be an earthquake and someone will look into it. And if they find an earthquake, it will be posted on our website. Have you been in an earthquake, William? I have never felt an earthquake, ever. It's, it's an embarrassment <laughs> being a seismologist, but I would love to feel one sometime. Unfortunately, Colorado is probably not the best place to get the chance to feel an earthquake. Which leads naturally to the question of why a national earthquake center is in Colorado. Maybe the best place to have an earthquake center is far from a lot of seismic activities. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a long history for why the Earthquake Information Center, the National Earthquake Information Center, is in Colorado. But you're certainly right that being away from significant seismic hazard is an important part of having an operation that can continue running in the event of an earthquake. Thank you so much for answering these questions for us. Yeah, I'd happy to do it. Seismologist William Yak of the National Earthquake Information Center in Golden. He helped answer questions of a seismic nature from Colorado Wonders. So what are you curious about in this state? Let us know at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR is growing and evolving to better serve a growing and evolving audience in Colorado. And we're looking for new members of our team with job openings now for a fundraising manager and Salesforce administrator. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make Colorado Public Radio. And your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. See all open job opportunities and what working at CPR is like at cpr.org slash careers. Before flying to Eastern Europe, John Babiak told us that one of his goals was to hand toys to children displaced by the Russian invasion. Babiak lives in Denver. His parents fled Ukraine in the 1940s. And once he'd gotten to Poland, he traveled last week from Krakow to Lviv, Ukraine, and fulfilled his mission. So when I exited my train from Krakow, I walked down the platform into the train station. There were several departing trains and there were many families ready to board within, say, 30 minutes or so. And seeing so many kids, I immediately knelt onto the floor, opened up this very sizable duffel bag that was packed you know, to the maximum with maybe a thousand of these stuffy toys. And they sort of popped out. And once these children saw these bears and dogs and cats and such, like ants (laughs) finding uh, candy, they all started to walk over. And wide-eyed, were so anxious to just grab one. And in my basic Ukrainian, I offered it to them, asked the children what their names were, asked the children to name the bears or the toys, gave them out, um, coloring books. And it was just a magical moment. 
Another reason for Babiak's trip to western Ukraine? To celebrate Easter with fellow Ukrainians. But the realities of war are relentless. Sunday was placid. It was beautiful. It was patriotic. And Monday came, and early morning, you could hear the whistles, the sound of uh, rockets, in this case, cruise missiles, at very low altitude, uh, flying over the city. I was in a park, and it was a very distinct sound, and it was one after another, about 30 seconds apart, and then you could hear the explosions in the not-too-far distance, and then very quickly the dark clouds from fire and explosions uh, were visible in the air. Sirens were going off, and people were on the run to get to subway stations in order to find some shelter, self-included. John Babiak, who's 62 years old, then returned to Poland and picked back up his volunteering with World Central Kitchen, founded by Chef Jose Andres. Babiak says he works a 12-hour shift, 9 p.m. to 9 a.m., helping prepare soups, stews, and bread, which are given to refugees. Yesterday, I also learned that some of the World Central Kitchen vans were going to the border crossing where there's a lineup of cars coming from Ukraine into Poland that stretches maybe four kilometers. And they were going car to car and handing food in bags to these idling vehicles with, you know, one person, three persons, a whole family, dogs and cats, in order to provide them with hot foods and some comfort while they're waiting to cross the border from Ukraine into into Poland. Babiak plans on being in Poland for another week or so, although he added that he hopes to return to Lviv should things calm down in the aftermath of the attack there earlier this week. There's an emotional component to this that I did not expect when uh, I left. When I look into the eyes of a displaced child or their parents, and you see their emotions, the glee from a child, but the fright of a parent, the confusion of a parent, the anxiety of the parent, that I had a sense I would experience, but for certain, it's very raw. And I'm an emotional, expressive human being, and it really has impacted me uh, and makes me appreciate what my parents went through. These individuals are moving quickly, they're confused, they're making decisions on the fly, and there's so many of them, right? With two suitcases and a little backpack that the child has, that is very challenging for me to appreciate every day and to accept. John Babiak, speaking with Colorado Matters senior producer Anthony Cotton via Skype earlier this week from a cafe in Poland. The Denver photographer is there assisting Ukrainians displaced by the Russian invasion. Later today, we'll share some of his pictures at CPR.org slash Colorado Matters. And we're back in abyss with the latest installment of The Kitchen Shelf, our retro cookbook series. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thank you. 
flower grows in Colorado that, depending on elevation, can smell perfumed or pungently repulsive. Meet the dazzling sky pilot. A relative of flocks, the sky pilot's intensely blue to purple petals provide a sharp contrast to its brilliant orange stamens. Above 12,000 feet in the alpine tundra, wildflower enthusiasts enjoy its sweet fragrance as much as the bees that pollinate it there. At lower elevations, where bees have lots of other flowers to occupy them, the sky pilot smells of rotting flesh or skunk to attract pollinating flies. At any elevation, its sticky leaves discourage ants and herbivores from eating them. Follow your nose to find sky pilots, but keep your eyes wide open as these blossoms are fleeting. Each is in full bloom for just about a day. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Sheets and Giggles. Now a cookbook written by someone who doesn't really cook. A listener alerted us to it for our series The Kitchen Shelf about retro Colorado cookbooks. This one comes from 1980, Ranch and Rodeo Recipes. We got a hold of its author, Clay Simons. She's 87. She does not live on a ranch. And as I said, she's not much of a cook. To that first point, though. I have a brother who is in the ranching and rodeo business. Let's see, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, and a great-uncle homesteaded a ranch in northeastern Colorado. So the heritage is certainly there. My heritage is a lot more urban because I graduated from CU in 1956 and went to New York for 10 years. I had uh, was a journalism major. I worked at McCall's Magazine. I worked for a fashion photographer. I did a lot of stuff in New York. And none of it had to do with ranching or rodeo. The family ranch is near Stoneham, Colorado, by the way, in Weld County. In any case, being a journalist, Simons was inclined to write, to document. And 40 years ago, she was in need of a project and began assembling recipes from friends and family. The children were very little, and I think I was looking for something to do. And so I thought, well, I'll do a cookbook. Let me see here. We have things like peas and dumplings, old-timers fruitcake. I had this wonderful time naming them, naming the recipes. I had more fun titling the recipes than I did compiling the cookbook. Let's just get clear on something. When you do cook, are you good at it? (laughs) I don't cook anymore. Believe me, I don't cook anymore. I don't know whether I was a good cook or not. You have to ask all the people who suffered through me, my two daughters. My husband died 20 years ago, so he's not around to vouch for it. I can make things. I can do things. I wouldn't call myself a good cook. In any case, we asked Clay Simons to dig deep into her culinary memory and choose a few standout dishes from ranch and rodeo recipes. A starter, an entree, a dessert. Okay, let's talk about Mother's Favorite Salad Dressing. Mother's Favorite Salad Dressing truly was Mother's Favorite Salad Dressing, and I use it to this day. That much I do. It's a sweet salad dressing. Generally, people are very fond of it. The key ingredient seems to be the two tablespoons of onion juice, Clay. Yes, and then you add sugar to it, see. What is onion juice, and how do you get it? Not easily. You slice an onion in half and you squeeze it as you would an orange. And believe me, you have to have strong hands. 
it comes very, very slowly. I just ordinarily buy a yellow onion and slice it in half, and I actually squeeze it like on an orange juice squeezer. Huh. Uh, and so this requires some strength. You, yeah, you, you d- say, select a large I'm, onion and juice it as one would an orange. Do not use too much pulp. I don't think of onions as having pulp, I guess. Well, they, if you're going to squeeze them, you see, you'll get, it, it's very hard to get the juice, but you'll get pulp. This also has celery seed, dry mustard, a little vinegar, oil. As you said, seven-eighths right. cup of sugar and some salt and paprika. And then once you've dressed your salad, you might move on to an entree, and you've chosen for us Range Riders Ham Loaf. What is it about the word loaf, Clay? It never seems all that becoming, does it? A loaf. <laughs> tell us about this recipe. Um, I can't tell you much about it. I doubt that I have made this recipe in over... 40 years. Now, you think I can remember it? (laughs) So a pound of ground smoked ham. Right. You'd probably grind it yourself. A pound of ground beef. And then obviously cracker crumbs, beaten eggs, milk to keep the whole thing together. Right. You steam this for three hours and it serves six people. All right. Well, we should move on then to the sweetest part of this interview, which is... Desserts and what what did you choose for us? I chose for you Montana spice cake because it really is a very nice cake. Now this I do remember, and I haven't made it for a long time. But let me see how I make it. Um, I see bacon, a grease, and flour square pan. See that's right. It's very easy to make. It's in a square pan, eight by eight. You frost it and you cut it in squares. It's not overly sweet. It's very tasty. I love the spices in it. Cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg. And then for a little bit of texture, you add chopped pecans. Right, right, exactly. Oh, and I see here that, oh my God, I don't know if I ever caught this, but it has to cook for 30 minutes. I think there was a typo in the recipe that said you cooked it for 10 minutes, which would never have worked. Fortunately, I don't think this cookbook was widely uh, circulated. Otherwise, I'd probably have been sued a long time ago. (laughs) And so how many, it's self-published, how many copies did you wind up printing? Do you remember? No, I absolutely don't know. And you should see the one I'm looking at. It is so dirty and covered with dried, what was once dried food. (laughs) <laughs> oh, my God. This thing looks, and it's bound in one of those simple plastic binderies, binding things, and it's falling apart. <laughs> you know what I love about it is the main image appears to be a cowboy being bucked off a horse. Right. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> Maybe that's you in the kitchen. Could be. Clay, thank you so much for talking to us. Okay. Clay Simons of Denver, reluctant cook, better writer, and author of 1980s spiral-bound ranch and rodeo recipes. You can see the entries for that salad dressing, ham loaf, and Montana spice cake at cpr.org slash kitchen shelf. Still to come, a new album from the founder of Eco Hip Hop. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Why is local journalism important? Because we need trusted and fair reporters who can tell Colorado's story and hold local leaders accountable. Congratulations to CPR's Ben Marcus. He's honored for his investigative reporting by the Society of Professional Journalists with their Top of the Rockies First Amendment Award. Find out more about CPR News award-winning work at cpr.org awards. Our next guest created a musical genre known as eco-hip-hop. Denver rapper and environmentalist Etef Vita performs as DJ Kavum. He holds a Ph.D. in urban ecology and rhymes about gardening and veganism. Vita has performed at the White House, cooked with Rachel Ray, and recently shared the stage with Wu-Tang Clan. He uses his art to combat climate change and food insecurity. When I cook it up, I got the compost with me. Fresh greens, fresh juice, cause you know I'm in the city. Got fruits, got fruits, got fresh juice with me. On God, cause you know I want to pull up in the city. On God, cause you know I want to pull up in the city. DJ Kavim, who grew up in Denver's Five Points neighborhood, is the founder of Plant Based Records. And his new album, Concrete Garden, comes out tomorrow for Earth Day. It's available as a digital download, printed, once again, he's done this with past albums, on a packet of seeds. The release party takes place in the McNichols Building in Civic Center Park. And Etev, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So much love on CPR. Thank you. Thank you. Concrete Garden comes with seeds for, I think, tricolor cherry tomatoes. Why did you pick those to accompany this album? Well, you know, I've been working with botanical interests for some time now. And, you know, as a as a record label owner, it's like, you know, we got to stay away from producing so many products that are just going to be locked away and the landfills, you know, CDs have just been becoming more obsolete. So I figure, like, you know, heirloom organic tricolor cherry tomatoes is a really beautiful way to focus on inner city gardening. People who can just grow that right outside their window shed, you know, on the on a balcony and things like that. Because you know, the last album was really supporting around you know urban agriculture and people who had garden beds and you know people who live in apartments. This is for them, you know. I have to say, one of the great joys in life is biting into a cherry tomato and having it do that little explosion. <laughs> yeah, it, it yeah, reminds when it me just that, pops. It, when it just yeah. pops. It sometimes can get messy, but it reminds me that tomatoes are a fruit, you know? Yeah. A really good tomato. Yeah, with that seed is special, you know, and there's a lot of them, you know, depending on how you're growing and how you, your soil tastes, you know, that's the, the, my, you know, that bio... Micronutrients is so important. You know, when you take that time to like grow your soil first before you grow your food, you can get a lot, you know, and that's the best thing about this whole idea of having a concrete garden. You know, it's, it's a soil that's untouched. Well, this is interesting because we're going to have a conversation both about music and I have a feeling horticulture. Do you do any soil amendments? How do you get rich soil? You know, I did a lot of bioremediation when we were growing at the grow house on 47th and York Street. My mother was one of the co-founders, and literally that land needed a lot of work. And so it was good to actually be able to see people be able to grow food within that community of Swansea, Illyria, because if you know about the air quality, it definitely affects the soil. This is just a block or two from I-25. Yeah, and Perina I-70. and all of that, you know, so yeah. it was a big thing. 
to be able to grow food and have food access. And how did you enhance soil, just out of curiosity? Well, literally, you want to grow things like spinach. You know, you can do mushrooms, bokashi. You can include, like, different forms of things that draw all the arsenic and the lead out of the soil, like adding your compost. But if you can't really do it, you want to get your soil tested and maybe even include, like, maybe a good 20 by 20 of topsoil you know, so that you can actually, you know, grow within a healthier range. Yeah, the extension offices will often test your soil for you. Okay, um, during the pandemic, DJ Kavum, you gave away tens of thousands of seed packets. And then on Instagram, you've collected the images of gardens that have grown from those seeds. Yeah. How does it feel to see all of those? Man, you know, shout out to DMD. When we were in the studio, we didn't know that we were going to drop it on packets and seeds, you know, and he was the producer I was working with for the Biomimics album. The album was dedicated to biomimicry, you know, when the goal, when we wanted to actually see people grow, wow, just to see the fact that so many farmers are sending us packets of, you know, their, you know, their style of like how they want to like package their seeds and save their seeds. And they had no idea that this was an album. I was like, come on, y'all, like, this is a vibe. And so the energy of, like, really trying to heal people through food as medicine was really what it was all about, mm. creating that cooperative economics, starting CSAs in places where it didn't exist because people need a community-supported agriculture, and that's the best way to sequester carbon in urban atmospheres, fight against the whole issue of climate change, and be able to address things like obesity at the same time. So there are a lot of goals being achieved. Uh, indeed, soil can store carbon. And you use that term biomimicry, which I think is just fascinating. It's the notion of how we might engineer our lives and the things we use in nature's image because there's a certain elegance to what Mother Nature has created. Okay, more music from the new DJ Kavim record, Concrete Garden, Concrete with a K. This is Juice Bars. I got work to do. Homie, woman, I go yogi on my juice. Trade a rolling for my juice. Now your trooper, never phony on the troops. Pour it out, pour it out for the deuce pop. Farmers knowin' when the fruit drop. Kelly, Kelly, killer for the trip drop. That's the waterway, squatter for the dust Concrete gold for the rooftop. So was that line farmers knowing when the fruit dropped? Yeah, that's a good line. <laughs> Concrete Garden is inspired by trap music and urban environments, areas where it's tougher to sow seeds and find plant-based food, which is why you recently helped launch a program to put health food bodegas throughout New York City. Yeah, shout out to Plantega and my team, How to Be Vegan in the Hood, you know. It was a beautiful opportunity because not only did, you know, the seed distribution really help galvanized for organic gardeners, but creating other plant-based options, I think was so important. So check that out, eatplantega.com. And you can learn a little bit more about all the locations available in New York. But that's really what it's about because the home of hip hop needed a lot of work. And during the pandemic, I really thought that it was the ground zero for a lot of people who really needed to have access to healthy food options to be able to like build up their immunity. And so that was our goal with that whole idea. You've no doubt heard of food deserts, but there are often food swamps. In other words, it's not that there isn't food available. It's that the food is really bad. The quality. Yeah. Yeah. The quality of food, of course, you know, is really what we're trying to improve on, you know. So the ideas of 
you know, young urban farmers who normally you might see on the street corner, they might be selling sprouts. They might be selling collard greens. And this is the real goal. I started in that same range. You know, I was one of those urban farmers at the Mobetta Green Farmers Market waking up early harvesting collard greens and cabbage and corn and going and selling all of my produce on the corner of Welton Street till like 2 p.m. in the afternoon. That farmer's market is still there. Mm. I retired many years ago, but knowing that that's the goal that we wanted to create, community-supported agriculture starts with us flipping our grass lawns into beautiful gardens. Are you an exception in terms of your view of health in hip-hop? Or do you find a lot of other hip-hop artists on this wavelength? You know, I'm I'm an addition to to the hand, you know. You can't pick up a pencil with one finger, you know. And so every DJ has an MC, and every MC definitely relies on the community. And so, of course, I sit on the shoulders of, like, elders like KRS-One, you know. Shout out to a a Tribe Called Quest, X-Clan. Dad Prez, of course, my brother Gray for plant-based dripping, you know, shout out to Earth Amplified and my new group, Sage and Cedar, because I think indigeneity needs to be brought up within the ideas of hip hop as well. Tell me more about that. You know, um, Sage and Cedar was a group that was founded by my brother Ashel and myself, you know, because we felt like this was an idea of actually organizing with our heritage of my nation being Cherokee Nation and my brothers being the Blackfoot. And we're based out of Oakland, California right now. We've been performing and really trying to bring shamanic hip-hop. And so talking about the Kunandetta, the medicine and rap, you know, the sage and the cedar and the soil regeneration also is in reflection of how we take care of ourselves. So it's more of like the, the space where we give homage to, like, you know, the elders who have been leading the way. So, yeah, Sage and Cedar, we got songs like Smudge It Down that really highlight how we can show other ways of healing, not only for our mind and body, but also for our surroundings. And a recognition of those who have come before us. True indeed, especially, indigenous people. especially with our name, Sage and Cedar, is dedicated to Cedric and Cedar Avenue, the birthplace of hip-hop. Let's play another song off the new DJ Kavim record and then discuss it. Quite a powerful backstory to this one, Etef. This is Pull Up on the Gate. Yeah. Pull up on the block with my garden hose. How much time you need? I said, dose, dose. Flipping all the gardens in the coast, coast. Like my food, vegan avocado toast. Let me most, most. Grow your food fast, homie, compost. Let me get the scraps, let me break it down. We gon' show your neighbors how to hold it down. Keep your dirt wet. I got properties to flip, they gon' hold it down for me. Break it up good, blow it all down for me. Turn the trees up, line the grass up, mister. Run the cash up, run the cash up, mister. You star in the music video for this one. You're working as a gardener in a wealthy neighborhood. When someone calls the police on you, and I understand this was inspired by real events. Yeah, you know, shout out to Native Earth Landscaping. Um, you know, it was a organization I used to work with to actually to uh, work on that actually same property. That property that I shot that video on, I used to, I used to work on that property many, many years ago. Oh. So, like, yeah, I was a kid planting begonias and cutting grass and trimming roses and that was my first green job. I didn't know what a green job was. I literally was just implementing the ideas of stewarding towards the land. 
And this is way before I started to grow food, but I was plant-based at that time. And I would show up with avocado toast to work. And so... Avocado toast before it was cool, you're saying. You know it, you know, and, um, you know, I wasn't working specifically with Native Earth at that time when I had, you know, had this issue of being a landscaper with some of my friends who were migrant workers who were dealing with issues of racial injustice and just feeling like this issue of bigotry that we wanted to, you know, document through music. And I wanted to document my style of how I would be in this dream to, like, you know, address the issue of being like, you know, the landscape landscaper owner you know within the song and that's the whole goal it's like sometimes we see all these other brands and businesses promoted through hip-hop you know if we can show how cool it is to like tour you know store towards the land and take care of the earth you know i think we can actually change and transform that you know that viral remediation we need also for the mind and body because we're not just growing food we're growing people you're growing people yeah. Say more about what that means to you. you know, so I, I hear the environmental justice message, yeah. particularly in that song, Pull Up on the Gate. Yeah, so straight up, you know, a lot of people didn't know that, uh, you know, my brother Ra Yosef Supreme, who's on that song, Juice Bars, he owns a, a really cool plant-based restaurant out in Louisiana. I thought about the whole concept of, like, providing, and that's how we grow people. You know what I mean? Like, we wanted to address issues of, like, COVID-19. Well, CMOS was the answer for me. You know, it was the ginger. It was the it was the, the tea and, like, the osher root and all these ancient remedies that our elders held close to our heart. And so I started to, like, really think about if we want to grow each other, we need to know how to heal each other mentally as well as physically. And it's not just the yoga. It's really about how we actually consume our energy through how we speak to each other and our manifestation. So Concrete Garden is just going to be a space for us to celebrate that. You know, tomorrow at the McNichols building, it's going to be amazing. And You're going to um, have gardening and climate workshops, yoga classes, a live performance. Yeah. They're at the McNichols building in Denver's Civic Center for the release of Concrete Garden. It is the new record from DJ Kavum. Uh, who is Itef Vida. Thank you so much for being with us. It's nice to see you. Thank you. So Itef Vida writes and performs indeed as DJ Kavum and celebrates the release of the new record, Concrete Garden, Friday, Earth Day. I'm on the move. I gotta pick up today. Yeah, I'm on the move. I gotta re-up today. I got broccoli greens on low, low, yeah I got broccoli greens on low, low Just sit it down and I run out Just sit it down and I sold out Look at my stack of Pomoa Look at my stack of Pomo Filling the carts when they run out Organizing by the color Used to go trap in the gutter Now it's a graze with my brother 7 a.m. at the market Washing the graze in our pocket I got the cabbage on low. I got the spinach on low. I got tomatoes on low. So that's I'm on the Move featuring, as he mentioned, Sage and Cedar. And that is Colorado Matters today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to producer Daniel Mesher. This is CPR News and KRCC. I got a re up today. Yeah. I got broccoli greens on low, low. Yeah. 
I got broccoli greens on low, low. Picking them greens and I sell it for low. Swapping your car and I'm running your coat. Chopping them greens before we could cope. Chef walking up and I know that the soap. Chef walking up and she said it was popping. Soon as she tasted, she running.